Six weeks later, a third piece of news arrives. I am called out of the hospital ward where I was lying wretchedly ill to receive a special message from you through the governor of the prison. He reads me out a letter you had addressed to him in which you stated that you proposed to publish an article on the case of Mr. Oscar Wilde in the Mercure de France, a magazine, you added, for some extraordinary reason, corresponding to the English fortnightly review, and were anxious to obtain my permission to publish extracts and selections from... What letters? The letters I had written you from Holloway Prison. The letters that should have been to you things sacred and secret beyond anything in the whole world. These actually were the letters you proposed to publish, for the jaded décadent to wonder at, for the greedy feuilletoniste to chronicle, for the little lions of the Cartier Latin to gape and mouth at. Had there been nothing in your own heart to cry out against so vulgar a sacrilege, you might at least have remembered the sonnet he wrote who saw with such sorrow and scorn the letters of John Keats sold by public auction in London and have understood at last the real meaning of my lines, I think they love not art who break the crystal of a poet's heart that small and sickly eyes may glare and gloat. For what was your article to show? That I had been too fond of you? The Paris gamin was quite aware of the fact. They all read the newspapers, and most of them write for them. That I was a man of genius? The French understood that, and the peculiar quality of my genius, much better than you did, or could have been expected to do. That along with genius goes often a curious perversity of passion and desire. Admirable but the subject belongs to Lombroso rather than to you. Besides, the pathological phenomenon in question is found also amongst those who have not genius, that in your war of hate with your father I was at once shield and weapon to each of you, nay more, that in that hideous hunt for my life that took place when the war was over, he never could have reached me had not your nets been already about my feet. Quite true, but I am told that Henri Bauer had already done it extremely well. Besides, to corroborate his view, had such been your intention, you did not require to publish my letters, at any rate those written from Holloway Prison. Will you say, in answer to my questions, that in one of my Holloway letters I had myself asked you to try, as far as you were able, to set me a little right with some small portion of the world? Certainly I did so. Remember how and why I am here at this very moment. Do you think I am here on account of my relations with the witnesses on my trial? My relations, real or supposed, with people of that kind were matters of no interest either to the government or to society. They knew nothing of them and cared less. I am here for having tried to put your father into prison. My attempt failed, of course. My own counsel threw up their briefs. Your father completely turned the tables on me and had me in prison, has me there still. That is why there is contempt felt for me. That is why people despise me. That is why I have to serve out every day, every hour, every minute of my dreadful imprisonment. That is why my petitions have been refused. You were the only person who, and without in any way exposing yourself to scorn or danger or blame, could have given another colour to the whole affair, have put the matter in a different light, have shown to a certain degree how things really stood. 
I would not, of course, have expected, nor indeed wished you to have stated how and for what purpose you had sought my assistance in your trouble at Oxford, or how and for what purpose, if you had a purpose at all, you had practically never left my side for nearly three years. My incessant attempts to break off a friendship that was so ruinous to me as an artist, as a man of position, as a member of society even, need not have been chronicled with the accuracy with which they have been set down here, nor would I have desired you to have described the scenes you used to make with such almost monotonous recurrence, nor to have reprinted your wonderful series of telegrams to me with their strange mixture of romance and finance, nor to have quoted from letters the more revolting or heartless passages as I have been forced to do. Still, I thought it would have been good, as well for you as for me, if you had made some protest against your father's version of our friendship, one no less grotesque than venomous, and as absurd in its inference to you as it was dishonouring in its reference to me. That version has now actually passed into serious history. It is quoted believed and chronicled, the preacher has taken it for his text and the moralist for his barren theme, and I, who appealed to all the ages, have had to accept my verdict from one who is an ape and a buffoon. I have said, and with some bitterness I admit in this letter, that such was the irony of things that your father would live to be the hero of a Sunday school tract, that you would rank with the infant Samuel and that my place would be between Gilles de Retz and the Marquis de Sade. I dare say it is best so. I have no desire to complain. One of the many lessons that one learns in prison is that things are what they are, and will be what they will be. Nor have I any doubt that the leper of medievalism and the author of Justine will prove better company than Sanford and Merton. But at the time I wrote to you, I felt that for both our sakes it would be a good thing, a proper thing, a right thing, not to accept that account which your father had put forward through his counsel for the edification of a Philistine world, and that is why I asked you to think out and write something that would be nearer the truth. It would at least have been better for you than scribbling to the French papers about the domestic life of your parents. What did the French care whether or not your parents had led a happy domestic life? One cannot conceive a subject more entirely uninteresting to them. What did interest them was how an artist of my distinction, one who by the school and movement of which he was the incarnation, had exercised a marked influence on the direction of French thought, could, having led such a life, have brought such an action. Had you proposed for your article to publish the letters, endless, I fear, in number, in which I had spoken to you of the ruin you were bringing on my life, of the madness of moods of rage that you were allowing to master you to your own hurt as well as to mine, and of my desire, nay, my determination, to end a friendship so fatal to me in every way, I could have understood it. I would not have allowed such letters to be published. When your father's counsel, desiring to catch me in a contradiction, suddenly produced in court a letter of mine written to you in March 1893, in which I stated that, rather than endure a repetition of the hideous scenes you seemed to take such a terrible pleasure in making, I would readily consent to be blackmailed by every renter in London, it was a very real grief to me that that side of my friendship with you should inadvertently be revealed to the common gaze. 
but that you should have been so slow to see, so lacking in all sensitiveness, and so dull in apprehension of what is rare, delicate, and beautiful, as to propose yourself to publish the letters in which and through which I was trying to keep alive the very spirit and soul of love that it might dwell in my body through the long years of that body's humiliation, this was, and still is to me, a source of the very deepest pain, the most poignant disappointment. Why you did so, I fear, I know but too well. If hate blinded your eyes, vanity sewed your eyelids together with threads of iron. The faculty by which and by which alone one can understand others in their real as in their ideal relations, your narrow egotism had blunted, and long disuse had made of no avail. The imagination was as much in prison as I was. Vanity had barred up the windows, and the name of the warder was Hate. All this took place in the early part of November of the year before last. A great river of life flows between me and a date so distant. Hardly, if at all, can you see across so wide a waste but to me it seems to have occurred, I will not say yesterday, but today. Suffering is one very long moment. We cannot divide it by seasons. We can only record its moods and chronicle their return. With us, time itself does not progress. It revolves. It seems to circle round one centre of pain. The paralysing immobility of a life every circumstance of which is regulated after an unchangeable pattern, so that we eat and drink and lie down and pray, or kneel at least for prayer, according to the inflexible laws of an iron formula, this immobile quality that makes each dreadful day in the very minutest detail like its brother, seems to communicate itself to those external forces, the very essence of whose existence is ceaseless change. Of seed-time or harvest, of the reapers bending over the corn, or the grape-gatherers threading through the vines, of the grass in the orchard made white with broken blossoms, or strewn with fallen fruit, of these we know nothing, and can know nothing. For us there is only one season, the season of sorrow. The very sun and moon seem taken from us. Outside the day may be blue and gold, but the light that creeps down through the thickly muffled glass of the small iron-barred window beneath which one sits is grey and niggard. It is always twilight in one's cell, as it is always twilight in one's heart and in the sphere of thought no less than in the sphere of time, motion is no more. The thing that you personally have long ago forgotten, or can easily forget, is happening to me now, and will happen to me again tomorrow. Remember this, and you will be able to understand a little of why I am writing, and in this manner writing. A week later I am transferred here. Three more months go over, and my mother dies. No one knew better than you how deeply I loved and honoured her. Her death was terrible to me, but I, once a lord of language, have no words 
in which to express my anguish and my shame. Never even in the most perfect days of my development as an artist could I have found words fit to bear so august a burden, or to move with sufficient stateliness of music through the purple pageant of my incommunicable woe. She and my father had bequeathed me a name they had made noble and honoured, not merely in literature, art, archaeology and science, but in the public history of my own country, in its evolution as a nation. I had disgraced that name eternally. I had made it a low byword among low people. I had dragged it through the very mire. I had given it to brutes that they might make it brutal, and to fools that they might turn it into a synonym for folly. What I suffered then, and still suffer, is not for pen to write or paper to record. My wife, always kind and gentle to me, rather than that I should hear the news from indifferent lips, travelled, ill as she was, all the way from Genoa to England, to break to me herself the tidings of so irreparable, so irredeemable a loss. Messages of sympathy reached me from all who had still affection for me, even people who had not known me personally, hearing that her new sorrow had broken into my life, wrote to ask that some expression of their condolence should be conveyed to me. Three months go over, the calendar of my daily conduct and labour that hangs on the outside of my cell door with my name and sentence written upon it, tells me that it is May. My friends come to see me again. I inquire, as I always do, after you. I am told that you are in your villa at Naples and are bringing out a volume of poems. At the close of the interview it is mentioned casually that you are dedicating them to me. The tidings seemed to give me a sort of nausea of life. I said nothing, but silently went back to my cell with contempt and scorn in my heart. How could you dream of dedicating a volume of poems to me without first asking my permission? Dream, do I say, how could you dare do such a thing? Will you give us your answer that in the days of my greatness and fame I had consented to receive the dedication of your early work? Certainly I did so, just as I would have accepted the homage of any other young man beginning the difficult and beautiful art of literature. All homage is delightful to an artist and doubly sweet when youth brings it. Laurel and bay-leaf wither when aged hands pluck them. Only youth has a right to crown an artist. That is the real privilege of being young, if youth only knew it. But the days of abasement and infamy are different from those of greatness and fame. You had yet to learn that. Prosperity, pleasure and success may be rough of grain and common in fibre, but sorrow is the most sensitive of all created things. There is nothing that stirs in the whole world of thought to which sorrow does not vibrate in terrible and exquisite pulsation. The thin, beaten-out leaf of tremulous gold that chronicles the direction of forces the eye cannot see is in comparison coarse. It is a wound that bleeds when any hand but that of love touches it and even then must bleed again, though not in pain. 
You could write to the governor of Wandsworth Prison to ask my permission to publish my letters in the Mercure de France, corresponding to our English fortnightly review. Why not have written to the governor of the prison at Reading to ask my permission to dedicate your poems to me, whatever fantastic description you may have chosen to give them? Was it because in the one case the magazine in question had been prohibited by me from publishing letters, the legal copyright of which, as you are of course perfectly well aware, was and is vested entirely in me, and in the other you thought that you could enjoy the willfulness of your own way without my knowing anything about it till it was too late to interfere? The mere fact that I was a man disgraced, ruined and in prison should have made you, if you desired to write my name on the forepage of your work, beg it of me as a favour, an honour, a privilege. That is the way in which one should approach those who are in distress and sit in shame. Where there is sorrow, there is holy ground. Someday people will realise what that means. They will know nothing of life till they do. Robbie, and natures like his, can realise it. When I was brought down from my prison to the court of bankruptcy between two policemen, Robbie waited in the long, dreary corridor that, before the whole crowd, whom an action so sweet and simple hushed into silence, he might gravely raise his hat to me as, handcuffed and with bowed head, I passed him by. Men have gone to heaven for smaller things than that. It was in this spirit, and with this mode of love, that the saints knelt down to wash the feet of the poor, or stooped to kiss the leper on the cheek. I have never said one single word to him about what he did. I do not know to the present moment whether he is aware that I was even conscious of his action. It is not a thing for which one can render formal thanks in formal words. I store it in the treasure-house of my heart. I keep it there as a secret debt that I am glad to think I can never possibly repay. It is embalmed and kept sweet by the myrrh and cassia of many tears. When wisdom has been profitless to me, philosophy barren, and the proverbs and phrases of those who have sought to give me consolation as dust and ashes in my mouth, the memory of that little lovely, silent act of love has unsealed for me all the wells of pity, made the desert blossom like a rose, and brought me out of the bitterness of lonely exile into harmony with the wounded, broken, and great heart of the world. When people are able to understand not merely how beautiful Robbie's action was, but why it meant so much to me, and always will mean so much, then, perhaps, they will realise how, and in what spirit, they should approach me.